0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. And thanks for listening and for your great feedback. Again, this podcast is designed for those of you that are in senior leadership in the nonprofit sector and those who aspire to senior leadership in the nonprofit sector. If you fit either of those categories, you're in the right place. Always appreciate your reviews and feedback. Let us know if there are topics or guests that you'd like to hear from that we can make this even more effective for leaders like you who are on the path. Fortunate, of course, to have some wonderful guests, including today's episode, uh, who are on the cutting edge, really, of our philanthropic sector. And before I get to that, uh, do me a favor. Share this episode with somebody else on the nonprofit leadership path. I bet you know someone who is in the space, hoping to advance their career, and hopefully this can be a resource for them. But today's conversation is with Mary Ward, the president of the McLeod Addictive Disease Center. And Mary and her team are doing fantastic and important work in the healthcare community that we can all appreciate now, given the intensity of the pandemic. And we talked about that, how to run a healthcare nonprofit, uh, despite all of the challenges that we face now. But we got into Mary's journey herself. How did she come to this opportunity? In fact, maybe this is a situation you will face as a nonprofit leader. When do you know? When do you know it's the right time to move into nonprofit leadership when an opportunity emerges? So in addition to evaluating those type of opportunities when they do arrive, we also talk about how do you hit the ground running? How do you manage if you're following someone who has been in a leadership position for a long time and you want to respect their legacy, but also be in a position to make changes when you see that is necessary? We talked about managing a nonprofit, again, in this stressful clinical environment, Uh, how you manage morale when you are in a virtual state and your team are not connected in the ways they used to be. Lots of good topics, and Mary has advice that reflects her journey and I'm sure will help you on yours. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 88. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com. And you'll find all the resources we talked about, as well as more information on Mary and the great work she's doing at the McLeod Center. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so that we can send you our weekly free resources on all things nonprofit leadership. And maybe we can help you and your organization with strategic planning or fundraising or perhaps help you personally on your journey through our coaching, training, or mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mary Ward. Mary, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: Great to be here.
0: Well, Mary, I'm excited for this conversation. You represent so many wonderful attributes of nonprofit leadership, you're thoughtful. And you brought so much to your work at McLeod and frankly, other organizations. So I know our listeners are going to benefit from what you've learned along the way. And of course, what you've learned is you currently manage such an important organization. So when we start with that, what is McLeod and talk about your role there.
1: Thanks, Patton. Um, McLeod's business is to help people get well. We were founded 51 years ago by a Charlotte pediatrician. In the 1960s, began seeing adolescents with drug and alcohol issues in her practice, and at that time, Charlotte really didn't have um, access to services. People didn't really talk about addiction back then. A little bit better conversations happening now, but but really back then, um, it was a taboo topic. And Johnny founded our organization in the basement of a YMCA here in Charlotte, and we have grown now to nine care locations. Um, Over 57,000 patient services were delivered this last year, and we are one of the leaders in medication-assisted treatment, so we help individuals who have an addiction to opioids um, get better, and that's through the use of therapeutic counseling, as well as medication.
0: Yeah, it's it's such important work. And I know, hopefully, some of the stigmas around addiction and the things that you're treating are getting better. But Mary, I can only imagine uh, it's hard enough to do the work you do. But in a pandemic, it must be even harder.
1: Absolutely. we we Our business really is in person. You know, we right. see people who are sick, Um, that have not only addiction disorders, but also other behavioral issues, mental health issues as well. And, you know, patients come to see us just like you would in a traditional clinic or, or doctor's office. And, you know, what happened with the pandemic was people were sent home. And, you know, we were considered an essential service, which meant, you know, we just can't shut our doors. Our patients depend on us for medication that keeps them from going into an active withdrawal. Right. So we still had to maintain services, but also sending as many people into the community safely um, with their medication and um, maintaining site-based services for some of the most fragile patients um, who can't manage their medication on their own.
0: Yeah, it's just remarkable. And well, how, Mary, how do you personally stay organized and and now a whole another level of complexity when you're not able to go in the office and your team's not able to go in the office in the same way? Have you found any things that have helped you stay organized, so to speak?
1: You have to. Um, You know, we sent almost 70% of our workforce remote uh, within a week when the pandemic hit. And myself included. And, you know, when, when that happened so suddenly, you know, everyone's life was disrupted. You know, we had staff that their spouse or significant other was also home, kids at home, um, and everybody's life changed. And one of the things that for me um, was helpful was the fact that, you know, I had to still maintain a routine. Um, you know, I still have to get up get ready, um, you know, take a shower, put on clothes, (laughs) you know, and and in the day of, you know, where you're on video a lot um, or on the telephone, you know, at at times it can be difficult to to keep that routine. And so um, for me, I used what used to be my commute time um, as time to prepare for my day.
0: Right And right. making
1: sure that, that the day is scheduled to where, you know, things don't just bleed over. You know, you still need to take a lunch hour, for example. You still need to step away. And so one of the things that I learned is that um, because we don't have the physical time to transition between meetings, I put into place for those that are, are working virtually and meeting virtually that if we have a one-hour meeting, that we have a hard stop at 45 or 50 minutes. Excellent. Um, We get through the agenda to give people time to transition and not just be in back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings.
0: That's such good advice, Mary. And I've had a couple of guests mention that because our calendars default to 60 minutes or 30 minutes, don't they? And so Mm -hmm. we have to be intentional about maybe carving back that 10 or 15-minute break Otherwise, we are going to be in a blur of nonstop, you know, meetings.
1: Absolutely. And what you see is that um, people end up dropping off or they go off camera, you know, and and you just don't have the level of engagement that I think you need in order to be productive, particularly in a remote environment. So you have to be able to balance those other human needs that that somebody might just need to have a personal break. And when we had control over physical meetings, then I think we found ways to find those escapes and being in a virtual environment where typically you're confined to a home space, um, that, that can get away from you very quickly.
0: Well, it's, it's admirable that you're uh, cognizant of that and your team, I know, appreciates it. And I think that's just good advice as nonprofit leaders, thinking about that level of detail about what your team needs and are you creating an environment, a virtual environment even, that allows them to be successful and, and frankly not burned out. And Mary, it's among the many good advice uh, elements I know you will offer us but I want to go back to your journey. I mean, you've been successful in various healthcare-related uh, leadership positions, but you you made the jump to, to be an executive director uh, a few years ago. And I'm wondering for our listeners that are thinking about the same thing, hey, I might want to do like Mary and move to an executive role. Talk about that decision, that process, when you uh, decided to take on senior leadership at McLeod.
1: Well, I think it came at me somewhat out of the blue. Um, I was in a local hospital system here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and was in a senior administrative role with the hospital system in addiction medicine and got a call from a colleague one day that my predecessor had retired or was retiring. Um, And this colleague had known that I'd worked at the organization before um, and she said, Would you mind if I put your name forward to the recruiter? And so I was a little bit taken back because, first <laughs> off, my predecessor had been in place for 36 years. Wow. And so, you know, I was a little bit, first off, surprised at that news um, just because this individual had been such a fixture, um, not only in the community, but in, in the organization. Um, and so it was a little bit of a shock to hear about this transition, but then I was like, wow, somebody thought about me. Really? And and I was just good bit, for you. Yeah. Yeah. A bit taken back.
0: What was it like? And I can only imagine when you're following and in, in someone who is literally a living legend at an organization. I'm I'm thinking about a lot of our nonprofit executive director friends, Mary, that are following a founder or something like that. So you get there, what did you have to deal with, you know, and and was it, I'm guessing there were challenges maybe just to get started?
1: Absolutely. One of the first things is culture. Um, You know, particularly when you have a leader that's been in place for some time, you know, the organization develops a cadence and a culture. And again, I had worked at McLeod Center uh, previously and was invited back to this role by the board of trustees. And so I knew a lot of, you know, people in leadership, certainly knew all of the leadership, knew a lot of people in the organization. Um, and for me, it was really an opportunity to come back and to listen. And that was a question that, that the board posed to me and during my interview process was, you know, what did I plan to do when I got, quote, back? Yep. And I said, well, the first thing I need to do is listen. And I said, I haven't been with the organization. Um, at that point, it was about 13 years. And, you know, I had moved on, done some different things, went back to school, got my master's, um, you know, was working in hospital system and was invited back into the community. And I really had to stop and think, OK, what what does this mean for me and, and where is this opportunity? And it was really exciting because I had a sense of familiarity with the organization and certainly the mission um, and was still in the same field of behavioral health, but it was really an opportunity to do some things differently and to clear the path for those who serve patients um, and allow our team's to grow and be their best. Yeah, love that. And for me, for me, that that was what I needed to do was I needed to come back to the organization and first off listen. Listen to those that are doing the work and help that frame what my job needs to be in order to clear that path for them. Because I went from being a frontline service provider and, and working directly with patients to clearing the way for those who do take care of patients to be able to be their best. And and that's really what my job is.
0: Did, did you have a timeline in mind or did it evolve? In other words, you get there, you knew some changes may be appropriate. So in the back of your mind, are you thinking like, all right, let me give this 90 days or six months or a year, or what was your kind of mental calculus in terms of you know I've got to respect the person I'm following but I also want to make changes what, what were the timing issues there that you were pondering
1: I had to look at each circumstance individually and each issue there were some things that needed to be changed immediately right and and those had to be done so you you have to to step in and be able to evaluate what needs to be changed quickly. Um, but also realizing what other things take time and culture definitely takes time. Um, You know, there were perhaps some operational issues, for example, very early on. Um, And I'll just give you a quick example. Um, There were codes, for example, that that were um, called over the intercom system if a patient becomes um, Combative or or physically um, violent, for example. Right. Um, then a code is called for response team, and there are certain members of the organization that are part of that response team. Well, I came from a hospital, and so code blue in the hospital means that someone has stopped breathing.
0: Yeah, it's not good.
1: <laughs> no. And and when I was, you know, in my first couple of weeks at at McLeod Center, they called a code blue. And that meant that that someone had just escalated in their behavior. And and I literally almost ran out of my shoes. (laughs) because
0: You know, I thought
1: that somebody was was, you know, had stopped breathing. And so that's what I mean about that was something very quickly where I said, stop.
0: Yeah, do, operationally, not, right. do
1: not call that again, um, because that that scared me to death. Not that the the situation, you know, didn't warrant proper response, but somebody had not stopped breathing.
0: Yes, I love that. And Mary, you, so you came in and, and you distinguished between operational things that maybe are immediate or first 30, 60 days, but how do you attack culture? That's such a, you know intangible thing in some respects, and you've done it very well. But tell me, you saw that you needed a culture change. How did you approach that?
1: Very deliberately and with the understanding that the Titanic doesn't turn on a dime. <laughs> right. And I don't mean that from the catastrophic result of the Titanic, but just the size of the machine Um, you know, again, you have to make changes as things happen and as events unfold, and and you can't predict that. And so, you know, I think it's unfair to label or to try to contain um, accomplishing certain things within a 30, 60, 90 day time frame. And especially under the circumstances that we're working right now, I think you have to extend grace to yourself um, and really understand that, that it's okay if this deadline wasn't met, but there needs to be a good reason for why the deadline wasn't met. And, and again, um, I don't think that you need to say to yourself, and, and I certainly didn't say to myself that I wanted to change culture within the first 18 months, for example.
0: Got it. That's what I was Um, curious. Right.
1: You know, again, I'm coming up on four years and we're still evolving. Yes. And, and I think that's the, that's the really unique thing about an organization's culture is that it does evolve because you have staff coming and going, um, you know, hopefully not in a revolving door, but, you know, again, You have personalities joining you. Um, Our organization, for example, has at least five generations represented in our workforce. And, you know, people are at all different stages in their life. And I think we have to recognize that and, and work with that and look at how that creates the unique culture that we and every organization has.
0: I love that, and and I knew that from previous conversations. That you it sounds like addressed culture almost person by person. You know, I'm guessing that you built it through individual conversations and and then small groups and other settings, so that you could kind of uh, help uh, imagine the kind of culture you wanted to see, and then you modeled it right for everyone else.
1: Right, and I also realized that there were a lot of eyes on me. Yes. And as much as I stepped into an organization that at that time had almost 400 employees um, there, there were a lot of eyes on me and a lot of people trying to size me up, figure me out, um, you know, as much as I was trying to get to know them and, and listen to them. So you know, back to what I mentioned earlier, I spent the first three months going to locations and sitting with departments and just listening. Nice. And one of the questions that I asked was, if I gave you a um, magic wand, what would you do? And some of the responses that I got, and I, I actually, when I finished my tour, if you will, I went away to the beach and laid out on the floor um, in the place we were that everything that I had heard, all my notes and began to organize those. And that's what helped develop our plan to move forward, to move the organization forward. And I'm pleased to say that integrating mental health services was one of the things that I heard consistently across our organization, because Addictive disease is in our title, and that's been, you know, foundationally what we've done. But our patients need so much more, and our teams have wanted to deliver that care for years, and it just hasn't come to fruition. And I'm pleased to say that we have just begun our integrated care process and and we have our first few patients in integrated care at McLeod. I love and that. It's all because of it's all because of listening.
0: Well, I was just gonna say in a remarkably short period of time, and they probably tossed ideas at you with the magic wand mentality like, all right, well we'll never get to do this, but I'm gonna since the new person, the new boss is asking me, I'm gonna share, mm-hmm. you turn that into, and I'm guessing Mary, there was probably some low hanging fruit. That you were able to have mm-hmm. early successes, and it—it it sounds like you built, in essence, the long-range strategic plan around their good ideas.
1: Absolutely, because they're the ones that are closest to the work, you know. And and I certainly couldn't sit up from my res- removed and reserved space and figure all of this out. It—it um, it took their input to help me see. And again, back to clearing the path for those who do direct care. Um, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, my job as well.
0: Well, tell me this, Mary, because it, it, I can only imagine it's a lonely world. You described it. Ever, all eyes are on you. You're the new, the new leader. Everybody's wondering how you operate. Did, where did you find support during that early period, which I'm sure all knew, nonprofit executives have to face what was it like for you?
1: For me I reached out and developed relationships with colleagues in the field um, you know I found someone who was willing to talk to me who was the leader in a nonprofit space um, and talk to me with the gloves off and, and I mean like the white, you know, pristine gloves. (laughs) Exactly. You know, get down and dirty, down and dirty, right? right? Give me the boxing gloves, you know, and and let's really wrestle with this because one of the things that I learned very early on is I didn't take just one job when I took this role. I took two. Not only am I responsible for running the organization and setting the strategy for the future and, and creating that vision, and and communicating it, but I also have a board, and nobody told me that you had two jobs.
0: Interesting. You
1: know that the the board is another job.
0: Is that the area that perhaps you were most surprised by? In other words, you were a skilled professional, Mary. You had good experience. You got a master's degree. You were ready for. I'm guessing so much of the management you inherited but was the board perhaps one of the things that you weren't quite as ready for?
1: Yes. In, in one really quick word. Yes. Um, because people don't really talk about that. Yeah, with, a great a lot, with, with a lot of ease that they talk about the business, you know, in, in my view, nonprofit is a, a tax status. It's not, a business strategy or a plan. Yep. And I think that nonprofit leaders run businesses just like any other corporate or private business owner. Um, and so again, you know, we don't have shareholders, but we do have stakeholders in the community and, and we exist to provide a specific service or um, purpose for the greater good of the community. And, right. and that's, that's really the obligation that we have. And we accomplish that through the board that guides us and, and really pushes us. And you know, I actually had a conversation with my board. Um, this month at our board meeting and articulated things that I need from them. We've been through a lot these last 10 months. We've been through an incredible amount of change where we are between 65 and 70% remote. We have 230 employees now in nine care locations. And we haven't missed a beat. And it's all because our teams rolled up their sleeves and did what needed to be done when I said, quite clearly, just don't lose a patient. And our teams leaned in and figured out how to make things happen when a lot of things weren't their choice. Right. You know, they didn't choose to go home. And our board fully supported what we needed to do because we had to make some changes um, so that we did not lay off any staff during this pandemic. And there are not many, not many people can say that they didn't lay anybody off during this, but, but I'm incredibly grateful. Um, And it's, it's because of the support of our board and, you know, It does take time. I have 16 bosses, so to speak.
0: Yes. Right.
1: And so that's, that's something that I think people um, may not necessarily think about in this role is you, you have to be able to turn in your day even between okay, something that might be a little bit operational or somewhat in the weeds. And then you have to flip and face a stakeholder and a board member and and the needs of the board.
0: I was going to ask you just that, because I love the way you put that, that you you accepted one job, and then you realized when you got there almost, there were two jobs. And <laughs> the second job being, <laughs> being dealing with 16 bosses. So what what has changed, I guess, from that early, oh, my gosh, I've got a second job kind of dealing with these 16 people, but it's gotten better. I'm curious, Mary, what have you done to maybe improve kind of board engagement over the course of your four years?
1: We've really been deliberate about diversity Good. Um, yep. and and diversity in skill set. Um, that's incredibly important because I, I inherited a board, if you will, that, that was a bit homogeneous. Um, And in the last four years, we've, we've added diversity to that board. Just more
0: intentional nominating. I mean, is that literally how you attack that? Yes. Yes.
1: More intentional nominating and, and having conversations around what, what do we need? What do we need? What skills do we need on the board? And I think that is, That's a constantly moving and evolving process because I don't think you ever get to, okay, check the box. We're done. You know, we've got it. It's, it's all good. It can always be better.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. And, well, how about talk about talent? Uh, speaking of recruitment, you talked about building a board with more diversity, and which of course improved your approach there. Talk about hiring talent in your team, on your staff. Um, what what has been your approach, and and what are maybe some of the lessons you've learned on that front?
1: Well, of course, first off, I think you know it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because sometimes you never know. Um, you got to start with competence, um, and again you know you you've got to start with right person, right role. Um, and sometimes, especially when you step into an organization, that may not be the case. You know, you you may step in and and find that you know, someone may not be in the right role. Um, and so, you know that's that's an issue to deal with and and to look at first and foremost because, um, if you don't have the right person in the right role, then that individual is not going to be successful and, and it creates a challenge for you.
0: Did you find that but, early on? And sorry to interrupt you, but I, yeah. again, I, I love the way you approach the timing of culture change operations. How long was that process in terms of talent evaluation or, or maybe appropriate role kind of sequencing there?
1: Um. It, it takes years at times, um, and, and each circumstance is different. And so I would say you've got to look at, at the employee situation and the circumstances that you're facing. Right. If you've got right, you know, not right person, the right role, you know, is there an opportunity for them somewhere else within the organization? Um, and I think that's certainly something that, that you have to consider because, again, back to the, you know, all eyes on me, um, people are nervous about how do they fit uh, with a new leader. And, and that is a very real stress that, um, you know, your teams are going to face. And I think as, as a leader stepping into an organization, you have to be mindful of that. There is, there is fear um, because they're not sure if, if they're going to fit um, and, and, you know, how are they going to be able to grow with the organization? But back to your question, Pat, and about, you know, what do you look for in, in leadership talent? Yeah, yeah right. Um, I look for people who listen. Um, I pay close attention to the conversation that I'm having with a potential leader because I want them to demonstrate um, the listening that I, I believe is is so important. And I know we exhaust this word as well, but communication, um, you know how do they how do they express themselves? right? Um, you know that was something that I'll never forget um, at Queen's University where I got my, my master's, one of the professors there, had us go through an exercise where we had a 20 page paper and we were to read that paper and then condense it down into one page, 12 point font, one inch margins, single space, and you better not miss anything. (laughs) Wow. And so what that did was, you know, that forced us to, you know, Walk away from volume and look for quality. And so, when it comes to communication, can a leader be clear and concise? Because, you know, in the fast paced business that we're in, as well as, you know, the fact that we're dealing with sick individuals, and also we're now virtual. How are you communicating, and and can you get your point across clearly and succinctly? Because communication really is a is a two way street, and so as a leader, you've got to be able to share your thoughts and your ideas and and your points, and make sure that they land in the way that you intended with your listener.
0: Such a good point. And yeah. so you have to yep.
1: you have to also. Be listening for the feedback that says yes. You know what you just shared really landed with me. So you know that's why I say we we exhaust the word communication, but it it really is incredibly important.
0: It's appropriate, isn't it? And
1: right, and and in that listener le- leader listening, sorry, um, you know you also have to look for someone that doesn't have all the answers because when I stepped in, I certainly didn't have all the answers and I still don't have all the answers. I'm always asking my team, well, what do you think? Um, You know, they tend to look to me at times for the permission if you will. And so that's part of why listening is so important is I'm trying to also glean whether or not someone is, is looking for guidance or permission. And there's a big difference.
0: Yes. So well put. Well, Mary, you, you've kind of articulated some of these key, I think, leadership tenets for a a nonprofit executive like yourself, you know, in terms of your team, building leadership around you, engaging your board. Um, Let's talk about fundraising. As you know, that's always one of the headlines whenever we're talking amongst ourselves in nonprofit leadership. How have you approached that uh, activity, which I know is not the only kind of revenue you have to manage, but you are, I know, the face and the voice for philanthropy for McLeod as well.
1: Well, it's interesting because our our model, um, you know, for the last 36 years before I arrived four years ago was very little in grant funding um, and no active fundraising. Exactly. Um, and so we went from zero to a hundred and 4.2 seconds. Um, <laughs> the, the pandemic really threw our, if we thought we had a playbook, um, it threw that out the window and, I got very comfortable very quickly with saying things to people in the community, like we need help. And back to the communication piece, I didn't have a whole lot of time to fluff a bunch of words and, and think about how to present something very eloquently. We needed gowns, masks, and gloves. We need, we had very little PPE when the, pandemic hit. And coming from a hospital, I understood what PPE meant. I'm not sure that many people at McLeod Center back in March of 2020 could answer correctly what PPE stood for. Right Now it's a budget line item um, for us and everybody in the organization knows what PPE means. So um, for us, I think it was visibility. And we're beginning to become more visible in the community. You know, we've, we've been in Charlotte and the Piedmont and Western North Carolina um, for several years, and in and, and Charlotte primarily for the last 51. Um, and I have run across people that are longtime Charlotteans, for example, that Still don't said, oh, know who you are, John, John. Oh, you talk about Johnny's place. And her <laughs> name. Her name was Doctor Johnny J O N N I E McLeod. Oh, you talk about Johnny's place.
0: Wow.
1: Oh, th- I thought they closed up years ago. We operated under the radar, and to an extent, that's good because if if someone is struggling with a behavioral health disorder. There is enough stigma from the community and from family employers that we didn't, we as a treatment provider and a helping source didn't need to add to that. Exactly. Now, my hope is that, and, and my goal is that we come out of the shadows, and as much as the opioid crisis and suicide have become more readily discussed with with a greater comfort and ease within our community that we begin to broaden that conversation um, and include addiction and and not just specific conditions or specific substances, because it's, it's far more prevalent and the pandemic has only heightened anxiety and depression and to a certain extent PTSD is what we're beginning to see an uptick That's what I in wonder. need among our patients
0: right i can only imagine the mental health challenges that you're already dealing with that are only going to be exacerbated by this you know isolated pandemic environment and
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i'm i'm glad you point out that while fundraising is a topic that we have to wrestle with as nonprofit leaders, your point is you have to start with communication, don't you? How do you make sure the community understands who you are and what you need, and then hopefully philanthropy will follow?
1: And that's that's my hope, because really, Patton, if I talk to anybody long enough, you either somebody in your family somebody you went to school with, lived beside, went to church with, worked with, went to school with, somebody knows somebody, and we all know somebody who has struggled, and my hope is from Johnny's founding vision is that we normalize the conversation and say, hey, I know somebody, and that's okay. Or Absolutely. I am somebody, and that's okay.
0: Yep, so true. And and, and it's, it's a global issue, um, but it's very local, isn't it? And very personal, I think, if people think about it. And that's where, again, the good work that you're doing is going to translate into support, and more importantly, help for people that need it. Yes.
1: I I think the thing that people struggle with and and potential funders might be that unlike other chronic medical conditions like heart disease or diabetes, even cancer, um, that this individual didn't, quote, make the choice. Um, There's a lot of blame that is placed on people, particularly with addiction disorders that, that say, well, if you hadn't taken that first drink or smoked that first joint, then you wouldn't be where you are right now. And uh, a shaming, that's a, yeah, exactly. Right. That's unfortunate because what we know about addiction is that it is a brain disease. And there are a lot of people in our communities that can enjoy alcohol responsibly and be able to put it down and say, okay, that's enough. And then there are others that say, this makes me feel like a human. And that's a very, very different situation. And it's not their choice. You know, it's like, I tell people all the time, you know, the patients that we treat, they don't wake up one day and go, Hey, I didn't have anything else better to do today. I think <laughs> I'll just go get addicted.
0: Yeah, not you know, hardly. it's no,
1: it's not their choice. It's not what they wanted to do. But because of not only their environment, but their, their biological makeup, they can't live without that, without support and and care for that
0: and yes, that's what we're yes. here for well and you've done remarkably well and I guess one of my last questions for you Mary is about strategic planning you, you've you've demonstrated an incredible adaptability to a strange environment without losing sight of your mission so how do you approach strategic planning now you know you you illustrated the conversations you had with your team when you first arrived and are you able to kind of do long-range planning now, or is it a shorter time horizon that you're having to kind of manage planning?
1: I don't think that um, long-range planning right now is really going to be worth the paper or <laughs> the time right. to type it, the time to type it out on your computer, if you will, Right. Um, and the space it takes up in your memory on your computer. It's it's not worth that right now. Um, you know, we're taking things in a lot of small steps and in a series of small steps. And I mentioned, um, you know, integrating uh, mental health therapy. And, you know, this is where I think you have to have a document that helps you stay focused. And that's really what we're using. Our strategic plan right now is to stay focused on key things that we want to get accomplished. And, you know, we, we have to constantly take temperature on that, you know, right. our strategic plan is going in front of our board of trustees every couple of months. And I'm saying things like, well, this completely fell flat. Um, this, this is off the table now, it's, it's, it's not viable. Um, And one of the things I learned in business school was was a concept from a wonderful professor of uh, be open to new ideas, but fail fast. Yes. And so I've taken that um, approach. And, you know, if if something's not working, then we're going to pull it.
0: Of course. Correct. Right.
1: Absolutely, and the pandemic has really created the opportunity for us to do that, and and really do it well, um, and and be okay with that. and In a culture, you know, going back to culture, if your culture is not okay with failure, then that's really going to be a problem, and and that's part of you know the psychological safety that I'm trying to make sure that we monitor and live at my cloud. Um, and just knowing when to pause on things because not, every, not everything in your strategic plan um, is gonna land where you anticipate it. And, and that's okay, but you've got to stay on top of it and you've got to be monitoring it and you've got to know when to, when to fish or cut bait.
0: Yes. Such good advice, Mary. And and you're not stuck with a three-year plan, are you? It sounds like you're no. working in almost three month increments, <laughs> right? We really can't really afford I mean, to wait three years to change something.
1: Correct. Now there are some, there are some, um, big goals you know on our strategic plan that may have a final implementation that's down the road but what we've done with the plan is break it down into smaller steps and we're staying focused on what's the next small step for us to take because everything around us is changing so quickly and again back to you know taking the temperature being in touch with your teams. We all are moving through challenges in our personal life um, as well as our professional life. And the pandemic has really blurred that. And for us, I think it's it's been a good thing because it's it's allowed us to really see what's important and and get rid of some of the fluff that um it's just not
0: necessary yeah, that's such a good perspective and if there's a silver lining maybe to this crisis it is that maybe it can help improve things that needed to be improved and perhaps mm-hmm. didn't have the impetus that now you do and mary this is fantastic you know i'm, I'm thinking about your advice around uh, nonprofit leadership in terms of evaluating culture, you know, building a team of talented leaders around you focused on good listeners and good communicators, uh, dealing with that second job, the the part of the job description that's not clear, which is managing a board of directors. Of course, fundraising, strategic planning, wonderful advice. I guess if someone did approach you, Mary, and say, hey, I want to follow your path. I want to be, you know, a president or a CEO of a nonprofit. Is there any other advice that you would suggest that they think about if they want to move in that direction?
1: I think it goes back to finding not just somebody who is willing to be a mentor, but find somebody who's willing to really talk with you about their experience, the good and the bad.
0: Got it. Take the gloves off, right? <laughs> take the yeah. the kit gloves off.
1: Yeah, take the pretty gloves <laughs> off and, and put, on, put on your fighting gloves because... Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's exciting work and it's exciting to step into, um, an opportunity like this and it's okay if you don't feel like you're ready. I, I was blown away, um, that I was actually, um, selected and I said to myself, I said, okay, now it's time for the rubber to hit the road yes, and let's go, let's go to work. Well,
0: indeed, you went to work and have gone to work very well. And so the kind of work you and the McLeod Center are doing are critical to our community. So I know we're grateful, people like you, and I know you would encourage others. We need talented people to consider nonprofit leadership, and I'm glad you've done it. And, you know, you're charting a course that others can follow. So thanks for all that, Mary. And of course, as you know, I always ask as a parting gift to our listeners, has there been a book that you might lift up that's been meaningful to you that you might recommend to our audience?
1: Sure. Um, Amy Edmondson, um, she is a professor with the Harvard Business School, wrote a book called The Fearless Organization. Um, And it has to do with creating psychological safety in the workplace. Um, That was recommended to me actually by um, one of my team. Fantastic. Yeah. I picked that book up and there's a great story in there that resonates with um, people in Charlotte in particular. And it has to do with flight 1549, the one that landed in the Hudson
0: Right. Oh
1: yeah. Um and and I don't want to give it away, but I want to tease it out. But it has to do with the communication between Sully and Jeff, this co pilot. Um and it sticks with me and I have actually used it and and reminded our teams about that story. So I would really recommend her book because I love that she tells a lot of stories in there that make you sit back. And, and there are things that, that, you know, you, you might recognize or say, Oh yeah, I knew about that. And then they're relatable to what you're facing each and every day.
0: That's awesome, Mary. Thank you. Not just a good recommendation, but, uh, an encouragement, (laughs) uh, you've got me thinking about, I need to get the hold of this book. And so I appreciate that, uh, that guidance, uh, well, Mary, where can people find out more about you and you know the great work you're doing at the McLeod Center?
1: Well, we're so excited that one of the things that we've done um, during the pandemic has actually been to give a facelift to our website. Um, and so it's Um, That's the best place to find out what we're doing how we do what we do who we are and how we approach this incredible work because you'll see from our website this is a journey it's not an end and we are here with you on your journey and again we're here to help people get well and our i think our website now um, as it it launches its new facelift really shows how we do that.
0: Mary, that's fantastic. Well, keep up the good work and we will indeed make sure that new website is linked in the show notes around this episode. And thank you again for joining me on the path.
1: Thank you so much, Pat. And this has been fun to chat.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mary as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your journey to nonprofit leadership and enhance your organization strategy, especially in this current environment. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, pattonmcdowell.com, where you can find out more about Mary, her work at the McLeod Center, and some great resources she lifted up. As always, thanks again for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. Just go to the podcast page, PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. You know, if you like this episode, you need to check out two others that are from Phenomenal Healthcare Philanthropy Leaders, number 39 Adam Cook coming from St. Louis and some of the work he's done in the Hospital Foundation World, and also Lisa Baxter from the MLK Foundation in Los Angeles also offer great resources if those of you that are particularly in this healthcare philanthropy community. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.